invite you to turn your attention to Acts 11. Very excited to be working through a series in this book, uh, lots to consider. So I'd like to share with you a message uh, titled, How to Maintain Unity and Integrity in the Church. It came from Acts 11. Also Galatians 2. I'll draw our attention there later on. Um, great passage too. They're all great. Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. That's a reference to Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul.
So brothers and sisters and boys and girls, I think we all recognize uh, that unity and integrity are desirable characteristics, right? Those are good things. We like people who have integrity. Um, we like groups and associations and organizations that display unity. But these are not easy things. They can be a struggle to maintain, and especially both of these things together. So often one or the other, we can, we can maybe maintain that, but, but both of them together, that is a real challenge. That's one of the big things we want to consider today as we look at Acts 11. Uh, we're seeing the continued growth of the church. That's, this is the book of the early church as it expanded from a small group of disciples to, uh, to a worldwide movement, and, and uh, the growth is continuing. That's what our chapter shows us. There's lots of good things happening, but there's a lot of things that are kind of different for the church. How to deal with that? Well, we see the challenge of maintaining the unity of the church while also maintaining the integrity of the message that the church teaches. And I think you'll see that there's a lot of application in this for how we are as church today. So how I want to move through this is, is first we're going to look at the church's message, then we're going to look at the church's struggle, and then we'll look at the church's answer. The message, the struggle, and the answer. So Acts 11, we just read that. Uh, I mentioned I'm in a series at our church. Obviously, you don't have the benefit of hearing the Acts 10 sermon. So let me just quickly recap for you what happens in Acts 10. There's this man, Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, kind of a big shot, uh, wealthy, influential. And he's a God-fearer. And he has this vision one day where God basically says to him in the vision, I've accepted your your worship, your, your, your prayers. I hear them. And I'm going to send a man to you, um, Peter, Simon Peter. He doesn't know who this is. Um, and, and Simon Peter, at the same time, gets a, a vision as well from God. And we heard him uh, give a recap of that there, that, that actually what Simon thought was unclean is now clean. And that's a message that God is giving to Simon Peter. He's saying, go to the Gentiles, preach to the Gentiles. And so Acts 10, he did that. He went to Cornelius' house and, um, and there's basically a Gentile Pentecost. If you do have your Bibles open, you could see at the end of chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles, and they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. So all the things that you see at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they're there at the end of chapter 10. And the news travels to Jerusalem, travels pretty fast to Jerusalem, and, and you'd think all of these Gentile com- conversions are a cause for joy, right? Right? Joy? But there's criticism. That's what we see at the beginning of this, this chapter, verse 2. Peter went up to Jerusalem, he was criticized. Now we take it for granted that the Gentiles are part of God's covenant people, that's something that we've heard from the moment we've started hearing the Bible preached, the moment we started opening the Bible, we, we know that as Christians. But that's a revolutionary concept for the Jews. The Jews at this time, the Jewish Christians, they're like, we're the ones who are God's people. It's not that everybody had a hard time with this. The criticism's not coming from everyone. Verse 1 tells us that the apostles and the brothers heard this. That's the The apostles, the leaders of the church, the brothers and the sisters, the members of the church, we could say. They don't appear to have any issues with what's going on. 
But the criticism, verse 2 tells us, comes from the circumcision party. Who's that? Well, it's a group of Jewish Christians within the church in Jerusalem who, who taught the need to strictly adhere to all of the ritual laws, strict adherence to all of that. Now, they're somewhat on the fringe, but they're still an important group. And so they look at this as a big problem, and, and they say Peter is associating with, he is even eating with, uncircumcised people. I suppose a bit of an analogy in our context would be, let's say your church decided to put up a sign. It doesn't have to be a sign, but let's say you did, and it said, all are welcome. And that's your mentality, all are welcome to our worship. And the leadership agrees with that. Um, doesn't matter if they, their dress is different. So, you know, there's very dress in, in our group this morning. That's great. Um, doesn't matter if their lifestyle is different. They come from different places. All are welcome. That's the message of the church. I trust that is the message here, by the way. So the leadership are, are on board with that. Good chunk of the members are on board with that. But there's also this group within the membership that says, I don't know if that's actually true. I think people maybe need to clean up a little bit before they come to church. Maybe that's a, a modern-day analogy. What's the real problem here in Acts 11? What's the real problem? It's not the fact of non-circumcision. That's what Peter's getting criticized for. That's the, the presenting problem, we could say. But the root issue that the circumcision party has is a lack of understanding of the nature of sin and grace and what that means for their status before God. So we could say the gospel message has not really sunk in yet for these people. The message of the new covenant. And so Peter goes up to Jerusalem to explain it. That's what verses 5 through 17 cover. We're not going to spend as much time with the first half of this chapter as the second. He relates the story about his vision, his time at Cornelius' house. I just told you about that. It's in chapter 10. But he emphasizes a couple things couple things for us to notice. First of all, he says to them, God made it clear we are not to distinguish between Gentiles and Jews, to discriminate, especially between Gentiles and Jews. That's the first thing. And the second thing, he says, I preached the message of Jesus to them, and they received it. They received him, just as we have received him. Now, does that have an impact on the Christians in Jerusalem? It should, right, when they hear this from Peter? You know, and if the gospel message is that our sin is so bad that it can only be overcome through death, and that Jesus is God himself who came to defeat death through his righteousness in our place so that we would have life, then the only status that matters is whether we believe in Jesus or not. Whether we're Gentile or Jew, whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, that shouldn't matter. Because the circumcision is only a symbol of the greater reality of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so to require something like circumcision would be like trying to build up a wall that's been torn down. In the end, it would only reveal your own failing to keep the law, since no one is perfect. So if that's the gospel message, and it is, then it should have an impact to these Christians in Jerusalem when they hear of what happened, how the Gentiles responded to Jesus. And it does have an impact. Those who are listening, verse 18, when they hear this, they fall silent, and they're silent because they're amazed. And they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so we say, praise God. It's exciting. Things are looking good. 
Well, the story continues. The story continues, verse 19, it's a pretty big scene shift here, and we're told that the message continues to go out. So we're not in Jerusalem anymore, but the message is going out to the surrounding regions, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. These are Gentile places, but there's Jews in these places. And notice what it says at the end of verse 19, those who were scattered preached or spoke the word to no one except Jews. It's only the Jews in these places at first that are hearing the message. Because you know there's a synagogue in, in that town, so they go to the synagogue, they talk to the Jews that are there. But some people do decide to go branch out to the Gentiles, and especially the focus here is in Antioch, verse 20. And we're told that a great work of the Spirit is done, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Excellent. This is great. But this is also new. And so if you're in Jerusalem, you're wondering, is this legit? That's what they're wondering. And so they, we better confirm what's going on. We better send somebody there. And so Barnabas is sent to Antioch. We've run into Barnabas before in the book of Acts. And this is also not a new thing for the church in Jerusalem to do. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel had gone out to Samaria, and Peter and John had gone to confirm what was taking place there. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch, and the ministry in Antioch continues. Barnabas, a good man, son of encouragement is what that means. It's his nickname because it describes his character. He's a man of faith, full of the Spirit, and he's preaching and the people are responding. The ministry is successful by the grace of God. And Barnabas sees that grace of God, verse 23, and he's glad. And he continues to spread the message, and the work continues to bear fruit. There's a lot of work to be done in Antioch. So Saul comes from Tarsus. Barnabas and Saul know each other. Tarsus nearby. Uh, Barnabas brings Saul, and he says, I need you to help me. We've got so much ministry to do here. There's, there's a lot going on. Please Help me. Verse 26, he came to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we should pause at that word Christians. It's kind of an obvious word for us, right? We, we say we're Christians. We use that term all the time. But that wasn't the case in the New Testament. If you, if you look at what Christians are called in the New Testament, or what they call themselves, put it that way, we are followers of the way, we are believers, we are saints, we are brothers and sisters. But this term actually is first used by those outside the church to describe us, a Christian, that's what they called them in Antioch, a, a servant of Christ. It's a good term, it's a good term because the way is Christ, right? Believers are those who believe in Christ serve and follow Christ. So it's a good term. The literal Greek here in verse 26, the original language this was written in, suggests that it, it kind of comes out like this. And in Antioch, the disciples transacted their business in the name of Christ. So you can imagine what this looks like, right? There's some believers uh, talking in downtown Antioch. They're, they're speaking the word. And one person from Antioch who's observing and hearing this, he turns or she turns to the other person and says, who are these people? And the second person responds and says, oh, these are the people who are always talking about Christ. They're the Christ people. They're the Christians. That's probably how it develops. And an important thing to notice for our purposes this morning is that this new name shows that the Christians are distinguishing themselves from the Jews. 
They're not even Jewish Christians so much as just Christians. Because what matters are not the cultural, ritual practices of the Jews. But what matters is the forgiveness of sins through the name of Jesus, the Christ. This is the message. As the hymn says, In Christ there is no east or west, in Him no pride of birth. The chosen family God has blessed now spans the whole wide earth. For God in Christ has made us one from every land and race. He reconciled us through His Son and met us with His grace. In Christ there is no east or west. He breaks all barriers down. By Christ redeemed, by Christ possessed, in Christ we live as one. That's great, isn't it? Those are beautiful lyrics to sing, if you know the song, to think about, just as you heard me recite that. Beautiful. But there's one problem. Not everyone agrees with that. Right? Not everyone in Jerusalem is on board with this new reality. And so despite the fact that the, verse 18 told us the general recognition of the Gentile believers was there, they glorified God, they said then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is generally the case. But there are still members of the circumcision party resisting their inclusion. And this is a real struggle for the early church. How do we maintain unity and not see the church divide in two? Grace and reconciliation in Christ. It's hard. It's going to require some confrontation. And we see two occasions of that in Scripture. The first is in verses 27 through 30 of our text. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Prophets, that's a lower P, prophet, distinguished from the Old Testament prophets. So we talk about the prophets and the apostles. There were other prophets in the early church. Um, These are people who would receive a revelation from the Holy Spirit to share with the church. That's unfamiliar to us, um, particularly us with our Reformed theology, which we believe is, is correct on this matter. But in the New Testament church, it was different. They didn't have a Bible they could just pull out and, and, and read the Scriptures. So this is a temporary office, lower P prophet, in the early church, while the Holy Spirit was still bringing the content of the New Testament into existence, something we don't always think about perhaps. So these prophets uh, are, are prophesying. Usually they do it for edification and encouragement of the people, sharing the message. Occasionally, though, There would be announcements about the future, predictions, I guess you could say. And that's what we have here. This person, Agabus, he stands up and he says, there's going to be a great famine. And it did happen in a year or two after he said this in the days of Claudius. And so there's a decision made that there should be a collection for those who are going to be in need in Judea. And that collection is going to be administered by the large church in the area, by the church in Jerusalem. And Barnabas and Saul are going to deliver uh, the contribution from Antioch to Jerusalem. So they're going on a trip to Jerusalem. And this leads to the challenge. There's a challenge coming for these men because Barnabas and Saul are important leaders in the church. And so when they're in Jerusalem, they know they're going to have to deal with the circumcision party. How are they going to maintain the unity of the church? How are they going to maintain the integrity of the gospel message which the church teaches? Well, we see how Paul handles it when we turn to Galatians 2. I believe we have that ready. Galatians 2. Very good. 
That hasn't been on the screen the whole time, has it? Galatians 2, uh, verse 1 through 10 especially. Galatians 2, verse 1, we're told that after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So this is in reference to the trip from Acts 11. And then he says, I went up because of a revelation. That's Agabus. That's his prophecy. I went up because of that revelation. And he set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What does that mean? That's not apparently obvious when you just read it. What is he, what is he worried about, this, this running in vain? Why does that make him speak privately instead of publicly? Well, Paul knows that the message of the Gentile inclusion is going to be difficult for people to accept, some people in the church, and he doesn't want to divide the church. That's right here in importance for Paul, very important. He doesn't want to divide the church. And so he speaks privately with James, Peter, John, some others probably. And this is wise of Paul. Paul's being cautious. We could say Paul is accommodating to the struggle that he knows is real in the church. And yet Paul is also uncompromising even while he's accommodating. He wants to maintain the unity of the church. For sure he does. But he's every bit as eager to maintain the integrity of the message. And there's an important application in that for you and for me and for us, you, collectively as a church. And we can even go bigger and say the church for all of us. We need to be accommodating. And yet we need to be uncompromising. And usually we lean one way or the other too much. Well, how does Paul handle this? How does Paul maintain the integrity while also being mindful of the unity? Verse 3, Titus is, is kind of like a test case for Paul and Barnabas. So they took Titus along with them, and, and Titus is a Greek. Titus is a Gentile. He's not circumcised. And some people encouraged him to be circumcised. I'm not sure if encourage is the right word. Maybe that's too weak. Verse 4 tells us there were those who wanted him to be circumcised. They're the circumcision party. How did Paul react? Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. See, Paul doesn't budge. Not a bit. And that's good. This is a good response that he has because grace is free. Right? Costly to Jesus, but free for us. The reconciliation that God brings in Jesus Christ is for everybody, regardless of their status. And that means that cultural identity, whether it's as a Gentile or as a Jew, that's secondary. And social identity, as an influential person or not an influential person, secondary. What matters is identity in Christ. And notice... It's precisely because Paul is eager to maintain both the unity of the church and the integrity of her message that what he's doing works. Verse 9, while the leadership of the church recognizes the truth of the gospel, they perceive the grace given to Paul, he says there in the middle of verse 9. And so they offer him the right hand of fellowship. And they, they affirm that they have distinctive audiences, that Paul is going to the Gentiles, Peter's more for the Jews, 
But, but they cement their shared fellowship in Christ with that right hand of fellowship. I said there were two occasions for confrontation. Here's the second one in the second half of Galatians 2. We've seen some really positive things so far, but for all the good that's developing, there, there's still questions remaining among some about the Gentiles. The circumcision party still exists in the church. They're still pressuring Jewish Christians not to eat and associate with Gentile Christians. And Peter feels that pressure. You know, Peter's a bit of a, he's a bit of a big deal, right? But Peter himself feels that pressure. Verse 12, before certain men came from James, that is from Jerusalem, the members of the circumcision party, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And it got to the point that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, verse 13, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the man full of the Spirit, strong believer, preaching in Antioch, even he joined in the hypocrisy. And so here's the other part of the struggle. In our weakness, we can be inconsistent and we can be hypocritical and we can flip-flop depending on the pressure that we receive from others. And Peter's a clear example of this. Peter knows the truth of the gospel. Very clearly, the Gentiles and Jews are one in Christ. He himself just explained it to the circumcision party in the first half of chapter 11. We saw that. And along with James and John, he shook hands with Paul. They gave each other the right hand of fellowship. So what's he doing? He's facing pressure. He's facing pressure to go back on all of this, and he caves to the pressure. Surely you know the struggle. To continue in what you know to be true and right when you're confronted with pressure to do otherwise? How often have you caved to that pressure? It's a struggle for new believers. New believers, a lot of times, their associations, their, their relationships, a lot of non-Christians, a lot of different pressures. It's a struggle for experienced believers. It's a struggle for pastors. And it's the worst when preachers and teachers cave into this struggle. Because again, consider the damage that's done here by Peter's influence, leading others astray. So how can we overcome this struggle? What's the answer? Well, there's a lot of things we could say, but, but in context of this passage, Paul shows us by the grace of God the way to approach this. And he it's because he, it's how he confronts Peter, how he confronts Peter publicly. Is that a curious answer to you? Confrontation? It's true. Confrontation. It, it needs to be done in a loving manner, yes, but, but it is a loving action to confront another person when they are straying. We've just been studying in our men's group the book Life Together from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and he says in this book, which is about the fellowship of the brotherhood, he says, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than a severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. That's exactly right. So Paul has this compassion for Peter. He has this compassion for the church. And it's all born out of the compassion that Christ has shown him. 
And so he wants to maintain the unity of the church, super important for him, but he knows in order to do it, he needs to maintain the integrity of the church's message, also super important. And so he does the hard thing, and he confronts his beloved brother Peter. So we have verses 11 through 21. Could you do this? Are you ready to, to do the hard thing for the sake of Christ and his church? You know, actually, it's quite easy to push for the unity of the church at the expense of the integrity of her message. See many examples of this. All about unity, nothing about integrity. And it's actually easy to hold fast to the integrity of the message, believe it or not. All you have to do is show less concern for the unity of the church. I've seen a lot of examples of that. But to do both, that's the challenge. And that's our calling. So what does Paul say in response to Peter's hypocritical action? Well, he says, verse 14 or verse 15, rather, he says, uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth, you can put quotation marks around this, and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here we are at the heart of the gospel, justification, we're righteous before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what he's saying here in verse 16. Not by works of the law. In other words, not on the basis of circumcision. Not on the basis of ethnicity. And he's saying this to Peter, but we quickly see that he's speaking to the whole Galatian church. Chapter 3, verse 1 makes that clear. He says, oh foolish Galatians. So he's speaking to the church and he says, it's, it's all of faith. It's all of Christ. It's none of the law. And since that's true, all that matters is that our life is in Him. Verse 19, precious words. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Later on in this, this book, he's going to say, chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Jesus. And in chapter 5, he's going to say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value, but only faith expressing itself through love. And then he's going to end in chapter 16, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. All that matters is a new creation. Listen, we sang that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's Paul. That's basically Galatians 6. He says here at the end, those who want you to be circumcised, they want you to do that so that they can boast in your flesh, that they got you to be circumcised. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So any attempt to make anything else a marker of identity, any, any kind of distinctive, that is to add to Christ. And then what he says here in Galatians 2 at the end of this chapter, he says that nullifies the grace of God, makes Christ's death to be of no purpose. 
So we need to maintain this gospel message of free grace with all integrity. And we need to maintain the unity of the church. How do we do that? We do that by being servants of God and, and His message of grace, not servants of men. Paul had said earlier in Galatians, he said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because what's behind that is those who serve men, to use that language from him, are, are actually really serving Satan, listening to Satan's lies, and, and either serving themselves, you know, serving man in terms of serving themselves, indulging in their own sinful desires, or serving the demands of others and bowing to the pressure to do wrong, that pressure to be hip- hypocritical. And all these lies from Satan are destructive. They don't lead to unity. They don't lead to integrity. But they lead to division and, and, and dishonesty and disintegration. But those who serve Christ are so different. Because we listen to the truth of God, a truth which builds up rather than destroys. And then we serve Him following His will. His will which is not only right, but His will which is what we've been designed for. So it's good. And we serve others. Not, not by seeking to do all the things that they demand of us and fulfilling that, but, but by promoting their well-being. This is what it looks like to be a servant of God, God who is the God of truth and love, the God who desires His people to be a people of truth and love, of unity and integrity. You know, God's promise to us is not just a call to do this, but His promise to us is that He will continue to shape us more and more into this kind of of a person, the kind of of beautiful people we are meant to be. And He will do this in the most beautiful one, in Jesus Christ. So that His truth and love will more and more become our truth and love. And that's the weight of Galatians 2 verse 20, which says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His life will continue to reveal itself in us. That is the grace of God. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to bring this to a close by noting that this situation with the circumcision party won't actually be fully resolved until Acts 15. And at that point, what we have there in Acts 15 is a record of a a council that met. I just came from a synod meeting. The the first synod, we could say, was in Acts 15. And um, this, this council is called to settle the question of whether circumcision is necessary once and for all. What's the position of the church on this? And at that point, all will accept us, even the strictest of the the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The church is one, moving out of Acts 15. And Peter plays a crucial role. So Barnabas and Saul are there, and as leading preachers to the the Gentiles, they're, they're going to speak about this issue. They're going to share their stories. But before they do that, they receive Peter's support. Listen to what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And there it is, this this public declaration from Peter, this bold move from Peter, this this display of integrity, all for the sake of the unity of the church. So I want you to be encouraged by this as we see it in Peter. 
despite the struggles he had previously faced. Despite the struggles the church faces uh, throughout this book, God is powerfully at work, and we see that as, as it continues. And despite the struggles we face today as church, God continues to work powerfully in us today, maintaining our unity, maintaining the integrity of his message, and he will graciously and gloriously complete his work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning that we could hear once again the message of free grace and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to live out of our union with him, that increasingly his life would be revealed in us. We pray that you would forgive us for times when we erect artificial barriers where Christ has broken down the barriers. Help us to be discerning in this regard, for to do this shows us such a lack of appreciation for the nature of our status before you, for the grace you have shown to us. Help those who have been hurt by the church in the past because of these things, not to lose hope in Jesus, who is perfecting us, his church, to be his pure bride. And we thank you for your Spirit's work of leading and filling and equipping us as servants of Christ to be true Christians, brothers and sisters with one another. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are the head of the church. And so you will guide and sustain and cherish us until we rest with you in glory. You're the king, and your kingdom has been established we pray that you would rule in us by your word and spirit until that day when your kingdom will be completely revealed and you will be all in all. And motivate us through this most encouraging of thoughts that that day is a sure and certain reality that we will one day experience. A day full of glory, a day full of blessing. Thank you and praise you. Amen.